Well, greetings, friends, and once again, welcome to another edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. I'm excited to officially and formally announce our partnership with the Running Aces Casino and Harness Park in Columbus, Minnesota. They have become the official sponsor of the Rec Poker Podcast, and we are super excited about this partnership and about our future going forward together. So thanks to the entire crew at Running Aces for your support, encouragement, and your partnership. Today we're excited to have uh, Hunter Sitchi join the podcast. I interviewed Hunter a little while ago, and we uh, we talked about a whole bunch of different things, just a phenomenal conversation. Had to edit it down a little bit to try to focus on some Texas Hold'em, but Hunter is a super interesting young guy with a lot of uh, great things going on in his life down in Florida, so I think you'll enjoy this conversation with Hunter. All right, everybody. Well, I am here via Skype with Hunter Sitchi. Hunter, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Steve. So now, where are you actually uh, calling in from? I'm calling in from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Okay, now, but you're a Minnesota native. I used to be a Minnesota native. I was <laughs> okay, born, so born and raised there, and I, I I moved down here when I was 20 years old. So you're no longer even a Minnesota native. You wouldn't even call yourself because because in Minnesota, you know, we like to say you're one of ours. Right, you're you're not allowed to leave. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you you're so, temp, you're temporarily relocated to Florida, in our opinion. My blood still bleeds Minnesotan, though. So. Okay. I hope Don't you're not a Minnesota about... sports fan, though. I'm not a Minnesota sports fan. I'm sorry to disappoint you. So you're not as depressed as the rest of us year-round. Right. My happiness is more important than Minnesota sports. <laughs> Very good. Well, why don't, we, why don't you start? I know you're a familiar name to a lot of folks in Minnesota. We have listeners across the country and actually uh, outside of the country as well. But give us a little bit of your story, like, you know, growing up in Minnesota, and then eventually how would you get into poker, and what are you doing now in the poker scene? That's a lot. Uh, so, <laughs> do, you, do you need me to do you need me to parse it down for you, Hunter? I know you're you're not a very bright guy. I can cut this into smaller chunks if you'd like. No, no, no. I got it. <laughs> I just need, uh, I just need a break so I can eat a sandwich while you t- while you talk. Of course. So, basically, I my my grandfather taught me how to play poker when I was twelve, and uh, I got kind of obsessed with it because at the time I didn't really know what what games of imperfect information were. But uh, later on, I realized that that's why it's so interesting and that's why it's a sustainable profession it's because it's difficult to determine who the best player is in a short period of time. So uh, I went and had my mom drive me over to Barnes and & Noble and, and uh, I used my Christmas money to buy every poker book that they had on the shelves and I read through all of them. And then I needed somebody to play against. So I, I taught my siblings and my cousins and my friends down the street and we all played, and then one of the kids on my basketball team said, you know, you can play online, right? And uh, I had no idea that was the case. I had no idea that there was this huge world of, of people battling it out online. So I started uh, playing on Full Tilt and Stars under my dad's name when I was about 12. And, and what, what year was that about? When was that? Uh, when was I 12 years old? <laughs> I think that was 2005. Okay. So I didn't do very well, obviously. I broke even for a really long time and uh, just kept studying and playing throughout high school. Uh, basically, I was, I was treating it almost like other kids would treat Halo or Call of Duty hmm. uh, or World of Warcraft. That was, that was what I did for fun. And 
by the time I turned 18, I, I was so good that I was considering going pro or playing professionally online the whole time. And then Black Friday happened. Yeah. And uh, I had no options. I actually had to go back to the drawing board and research what was possible. So the uh, first thing I did was try and figure out when online poker was going to be back up. And it, it didn't look very good. Uh, the UIGEA and the, and the DOJ weren't being very nice. Um, I, you know, I'm sure tons of people listening to this have been through that. And uh, I basically had to take a look at, uh, you know, U.S. gambling laws. Where am I allowed to gamble as an 18-year-old? Mm -hmm. And there weren't very many places. There was, you know, Minnesota, uh, two casinos in Oklahoma, uh, two casinos in, in Mississippi, and South Florida. So, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't have the, the means at the time, especially after my accounts online had gotten shut down, to really do anything. So I, I, I had 500 bucks worth of Christmas money, uh, you know, between my, my two sets of grandparents and, and my parents. And all I wanted to do with it was, was go play poker live. So it turns out that running aces harness park, uh, sure. in Columbus, Minnesota was, you know, 15 minutes down the road. And that was what I started doing on the weekends. So, uh, I, I had no idea how to play live poker. I, I, didn't know what uh, a cage was or what's a rack. What you know, <laughs> what is any of this stuff, right? How do how do I get chips? How do I sit down and play? What you know? Why is the rake so high? Why are they raking seven dollars out of every pot? That's crazy. Uh, but you know, so I had to adapt, and there's like all these different elements and different sources of information that uh, I wasn't used to. You know, sitting and actually playing against real people. But uh, you know, I adapted, and in the in the first couple of months, I, I turned it five hundred bucks into ten k playing one, two, nice. uh, you know, started taking shots at two, five. And I think within the, the first 18 months, I had turned it into about 30 K playing two, five. And, uh, then I started experimenting with tournaments a little bit. I final tabled, I think the third tournament I ever played. So I, I definitely can't say I haven't run good. <laughs> uh, and then I, you know, I think two weeks after that, I won the Minnesota state classic. I was 19 at the time. And uh, then I started playing the much bigger Survivor tournaments at uh, Canterbury Park. So we were basically playing 510 or 1020, no limits. Uh, and that was when I, I, I turned my role into about 100K. So that was right after my 20th birthday. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm definitely going to do this for a living. There's no reason for me to try and pursue any other career. Uh, this is just too lucrative. And, and the games in the Midwest had gotten too small for me. So I had to start looking at other options and, uh, yeah, I, I literally made a list. I still have the text file on my laptop, uh, evaluating the pros and cons of, of moving to different locations throughout the United States. I, you know, I looked at Atlantic city. Uh, I, I looked at, you know, some of the casinos in Oklahoma that have huge cash games. I looked at Vegas, obviously, uh, LA and South Florida. And, you know, based off of the criteria, the things that I thought were most important, um, Florida was was clearly the best. If people want to get connected with some of the things of that you're doing online, is it is it through checkshovepoker.com? Is it through Twitter? Is it through Redshift? What's kind of the best way to really get in and see some of the things that you've been doing? Everything is centered at checkshovepoker.com. So everything that I'm doing 
with real estate, I believe it also relates to poker in the sense that you want to create passive income. So I'm blogging about it on checkshowpoker.com, right? Uh, if you want coaching from me, you can get that at checkshowpoker.com. If you want training videos that I've produced, I have, I have links to all of them scattered, you know, they're scattered all around the web, but you can get the links to them at Shark Show Poker. If you want uh, a bunch of free training content, uh, you'll get all of that at the site. And, and that's why it was so important for me to learn how to put it together. And so also, I know that you've got a book coming out fairly soon, maybe touch a little bit on that. And is that also uh, the information on that also available through checkshovepoker.com? Yes, all, all the info is, is available through CheckShove, and that was just a, that was something that I always wanted to do because I remember being 12 years old, reading all of those poker books, or uh, you know being a teenager and trying to be able to play like 400 NL on Stars or, or Full Tilt and not doing very well because the training materials out there sucked. And uh, basically, I wanted to write the poker book that I wish I had when I was about 16. <laughs> um, and I realized that I had so many meticulously taken notes uh, arranged in, in different files on my laptop that I had enough to basically turn those notes into a book if I was willing to just spend some time and edit them and expand them a little bit and add some hand history examples. So basically, uh, so, it's, a book, it's a book that you've written over the last five or ten years. Yeah, it's a compilation of every, all of the notes that I had taken on on a lot of different topics. Uh, topics that I, I, I can say without a doubt nobody else has ever written about because I've read all of the books on the market and they suck. Uh, like n there, there are no books out there that can effectively teach people how to to calculate pot odds, pot equity, fold equity, minimum defense frequency, implied odds, um, even off the table, right? And I know this because I've coached over 250 players over Skype. I, I ask them, if I bet half the pot, uh, how often do I need to get you to fold to be able to bluff with any two cards? And they can't answer that. They have no idea. And I go, if I bet half the pot, how often do you need to have the best hand to break even by calling? And they have no idea, right? Mm -hmm. It's so, or I'll ask them a third question. If, if I bet half the pot, how much of your range do you have to defend with to prevent me from being able to bluff with any two cards? They have no idea. So what does that mean? That means that all of the guys that have written poker books in the past have failed to convey those mathematical concepts in a way that the general population can understand. And apply. And, mm -hmm. Right, and that was why I was so frustrated when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, uh, trying to work my way up through the ranks uh, is because like, I, I couldn't find any materials that could, that could accurately and efficiently convey what I needed to learn. Uh, and what I ended up having to do was, um, first of all, just starting, start studying game theory on my own, game theory totally unrelated to poker a lot of different books, uh, trying to figure out how all of that fit. How do you find a Nash equilibrium, right? How do you, how do you find, um, environments where neither player is profiting and, and neither player can make an alteration to his strategy to be able to exploit his opponent. So when, when's the so book when, coming out? What's, what's it called? What, what should we be looking for? The, the book is called advanced concepts in no limit hold'em, a modern approach to poker analysis, and it'll be available, uh, 
uh, in the United States June 1st, 2017, and it will be available um, all throughout Europe in July 1st, 2017. It's, it's going to be translated into at least four languages, so it's Spanish, Italian, German, and Russian. So the, so the and, timing is perfect with the release based on the podcast. Now, I reached out to you not knowing you had a book releasing on June 1st in the U.S., but the timing is good. Is is this something, is it, where will it be available? Can people pre-order it? What's the what's the skinny on that deal? So it's it's the, the e-book version of it is available for pre-order through dandbpoker.com. So d-a-n-d-b-p-o-k-e-r.com. Okay. And you can also get it on Amazon.com, uh, and then you'll, it, it would be available to you June 1st. Uh, the other thing is that it's it's accompanied by uh, four hours of premium training content that is not available to, to the public. I haven't shared it with anybody. It's uh, designed to be a, a course guide for the book, actually. So, mm. so I've learned to just to make it so that everything is tailored to my student before they even sit down with me over Skype. They've already taken a VARC learning style assessment. So I know exactly how they absorb information. And I also uh, refuse to coach them if they're not willing to take a 16 personalities.com test. It, it takes about 15 minutes and uh, it's based off of the, the Myers Briggs test. Right. Is, and I think that is so important too, because the difference between being, um, an introvert where you have an overwhelming sense of purpose and you're motivated by something from within and, and not by other people is, 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 is so important in poker, right? Uh, and, and I found that the people that really struggle with poker are people that are, that are extroverts, people that need to be motivated by a crowd of people or, or motivated by external stimuli, right? You're not ever getting that in poker. Nobody else is going to encourage you to play better. Nobody else is going to tell you to, to get out of bed on time and go study this, go study that, make sure <laughs> right. you manage your finances well, and then go sit down at the table and crush people, right? You're not going to get that in poker. The best poker players in the world are, are very introverted people. Um, so working with those people, it's very natural for me. I can, I can teach them how to crush because that is their sense of purpose in life. That's all they want to do. But when I'm, when I'm working with extroverts, uh, I have to completely – change my program almost to the extent that we're not even working on things that are poker related anymore. We're working on uh, creating a lifestyle environment where they can actually be successful within the poker sphere. And it, it, it really comes down to surrounding themselves with other successful poker players that, that aren't interested in carnal things. Jim Rohn is very famous for saying that uh, you are the sum of the, the four or five people that you spend the most time with. And for, for the extroverted people that I was, that I was coaching, um, I realized that that was definitely the case. So if they spent a lot of time with guys that were playing 1-2 or guys that were playing 2-5 or guys that wanted to go play 365 circuit events or $550 circuit events, they were never, ever going to make any progress because uh, the people that have, have been playing at that level for a long time were not motivated. They didn't have higher aspirations. And as a result, my students were suffering. So what I did was uh, I connected them with, with very successful poker players, people that were constantly traveling around and people that didn't mind having somebody else tag along with them and stay at an Airbnb or, or, or split a hotel or fly on the same flight or 
take an Uber over to Commerce and play this event. And that was huge because I just I took extroverted people that, that are motivated by external stimuli and I surrounded them with very successful people and they, they produced huge results, so much more than they would have if I just assigned them some really good coaching material and told them to go do it on their own. Right. So, man, a lot of lot of good stuff. I know we only have a limited amount of time, though, so I wanna I wanna shift gears a little bit as we transition. Obviously, you've got a ton of experience um, at your young age, playing and teaching and writing and coaching and and all those things. But uh, for those of those of the folks that are out there listening, that are trying to grow their game, and but what are those mistakes that you see people making all of the time? You know, where you're sitting back, going, "Boy, I I can." I can exploit that or, you know, inside you're kind of shaking your head because somebody's, you know, obviously very inexperienced. What are those buckets of mistakes people are making where they really, you know, people, we could be really be paying attention to to try to improve our game? The, the number one thing that separates an average poker player from an elite poker player is situational awareness. So it, it, that doesn't necessarily mean being consciously aware of information, but that the information that's important is registering with your subconscious somewhere. And the, the way that I teach my students to do that is to play blindfolded poker. So I will literally blindfold them and uh, they have no information about the hand whatsoever. And then I force them to ask me questions about what's going on at the table uh, to, to get them to learn to use all of their senses to play poker. And, and that might sound completely insane, uh, but that's the same way that uh, paramedics are trained. That's the same way nurses are trained. That's the same way person, uh, personnel in the military are trained for certain things. That, that they're blindfolded and, they, and their, their, their sensory stimuli is limited. So, so, so say more uh, with it. So they'd be playing online and they, the only information they have is what they ask you about? Exactly. So interesting. They don't. They don't even know what stake or what site we're playing on or anything. So they, they have to start by asking me, what website are we playing on? Right. We're, <laughs> okay. We're, we're playing on ACR, uh, and I and they go, okay. Uh, you know, what game are we playing? And, and I'm like, okay, we're we're playing uh, fifty cent a dollar, no limit. And and then they have to ask me how many players are at the table. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, we're playing we're, we're playing six max. Uh, then they go, okay, is anybody, has anybody gotten up from the table or is everybody present? I go, no, everybody's present. Um, and then to actually play out the hand, they need to ask me a series of questions. So they need to go, where am I in relation to the button? I go, okay, you're in the cutoff. Uh, and they need to ask me, you know, what are the, the, the HUD stats on my opponents? What, you know, what is this guy's PFR? You know, how often is this guy three betting me, right? They actually need to be consciously aware of that stuff where a lot of times they're, they're overlooking it uh, unless they're blindfolded, unless I, hmm. I take away the privilege of sight from them. Okay? So you're, you're learning as much from them about what they're asking as what they're not asking. Exactly. I'm learning all of the flaws in their games, all the things that they're not consciously thinking about. I force them uh, to think about those things by just taking away the gift of sight. And, you know, then after considering all of that stuff, then they're allowed to ask me what their whole cards are, right? Mm-hmm. Because like everybody <laughs> at the smaller stakes, um, they, they go straight to the whole cards. They just look down at the whole cards and they make a decision before the action is on them. And they're not considering any of the other variables involved. Okay. Okay. The, so my, so, so my students don't get to know what their whole cards are until they ask me at least 10 questions like that. So the issue is situational awareness. And this is how you 
train your students to to become more situationally situationally aware, but also just to internalize that process of asking the right questions, not just looking at the cards. Absolutely, and yeah. and you know I, I don't have the answers to all of their problems, but I know the right questions to ask. And if you right. just continue to ask questions, uh, it's going to take you down a path that that. Uh, you know, leads you to the information that you need to acquire to make that decision. And the, the same thing applies on the flop. Let's say that my student, you know, has king queen suited and he raises and the button continues and then the flop is dealt. Uh, everybody that plays poker, especially live poker, goes straight to just staring at the flop. What do I have? Oh, I flopped top pair, right? My students don't get to know what the flop is until they ask me a series of questions, right? They need to know what the stack depth is for both players. They need to know what the size of the pot is. They need to know what the stack to pot ratio is for, for the effective stack. Uh, so how many times uh, the pot is your stack, right? Is your stack, are, are we playing in a, a SPR of 10 where we have three bets? Uh, you know, we can, we can play real poker or is the SPR two where we, we have, uh, we, we could bet half the pot and shove the turn, right? And uh, then I have to ask them, you know, uh, like, who are you, who are you playing against? Have you considered who you're playing against? Is he loose passive? Is he aggressive? Have you considered the range of hands that he defended with out of the big blind? Oh, you have. Okay. Well, tell me what he's defending with out of the big blind. Then they're allowed to, to know what the flop is. And then they can consider the rest of the variables. And, you know, that's the number one thing that separates an elite poker player from an average poker player. The average poker player is just focusing on his cards, focusing on the flop and ignoring all of this information available to him, right? Uh, but I can turn them into very good poker players real quick just by blindfolding them. Oh, so good. And one of the one of the other things, maybe you can touch on this a little bit uh, for us less experienced players, is you know sometimes we're playing well and we're we're paying attention to all of those things, the things that we're supposed to be paying attention to, things like what you've told us to pay attention to. But sometimes we struggle with, well, what do I do with that information? So. Okay, I paid attention and they just opened and, you know, whatever. They've got 50 big blinds and I've got 30 big blinds. And then sometimes it's the other way around. They got 30 and I got 50. Okay, so we've, we've noticed those situations. We've noticed the stack depth. We've noticed, you know, the SPR or whatever. But so what? I mean, how do, how do you move us from being aware to knowing what to actually do with that information? Well, you, you have to start from square one, right? I'm a really big fan of Elon Musk, you know, the, the, the guy that put together X.com and PayPal and Tesla and SolarCity and and, uh, and everything else, right? Um, and I, I've watched a ton of interviews with him where he says the exact same thing. People go, how did you make these huge innovations? And he said, I started from square one. I went back to fundamental principles. What do I know about the world? What never changes? And, and then he just reverts back to physics, right? He knows the speed of light in a vacuum. Uh, he knows how gravity works, right? He knows how Newton's laws of motion work, and that's about it. Everything else is just rules that humans made up about how things should work, right? As soon as you eliminate all those rules, you see that there are a lot more possibilities, okay? So getting back to poker, you have to start with fundamental principles. What is your primary objective? Your primary objective is to make money. How do you do that in poker? Uh, you need to have, all of your decisions need to have a higher expected value than the, than the decisions that your opponents are making, and how do you do that? You, you need to have uh, some sort of competitive advantage, and in poker it comes uh, in the form of information, okay? So to, to, to start, like I, I teach them all of the 
the optimal opening ranges. Those are those are protocols that never change. These are the optimal ranges. Uh, maybe you could make a few alterations from the cutoff or the button in late position, but other than that, they never really change. Now, in terms of you know deciding whether or not you want a three bet with 30 big blinds like you were talking about, right? You need to go, okay, is the hand that I'm holding right now um, ahead of my opponent's range on average, right? Typically, you're going to be flatting or three betting with a range that's half the size of your opponent's opening range. So if somebody is opening a, an optimal range of hands from the cutoff uh, in, in, uh, in a cash game with 100 big blinds, he's going to be opening about 24% of the time, right? Which means that you need to be defending the button about 12% of the time. Uh, 4% of the time you're going to be flatting and 8% of the time you're going to be three betting. And you also need to think about, you know, how you're going to structure that range of hands, right? Uh, you need to make sure that you have big pairs when you three bet and you also need to make sure that you're occasionally flatting with them so that, so that you have those on dry boards the times that you call. You need to make sure that you're, you know, three betting with big aces, but you can't three bet with all of them because you need to make sure that you have some big aces the times that you actually call on the button. And I go through all of that with them, but, mm -hmm. but that's the number one thing is realizing that your primary, primary objective is to make money. And if you can't come up with a very clearly outlined set of objectives of how you're going to make money post-flop, you have no reason to be playing the hand to begin with. And I just see that all the time. Everybody, everybody made fun of me at Running Aces, Harness Park. They said, Hunter, you play way too tight, man. And you never flat the button. You're always three-betting a huge percentage of the time. You don't know what you're doing, right? And it's they're all still grinding two to hundred spread and I'm busy playing 50, hundred PLO, mm -hmm. right? There's, you know, and it, it, it's, it all comes down to that. I had a clearly defined set of objectives, uh, with every hand that I played pre-flop and I knew exactly how I was going to make money post-flop. I knew exactly what portions of my opponent's range I was targeting, uh, what portions of his range I dominated and they didn't, they were just playing their cards. So, so you, the good, this is fantastic stuff. So you've got the overall, paradigm of I'm trying to make the positive EV play and the structure that goes into that and then I mean in, in a tournament sort of situation I think I think more in terms of utility theory so it's expected value which you have to layer on ICM implications and, and all of those things but when you come down to um, when it comes down to the actual decision at hand primarily is your construct a range versus range construct and the other information, all that information that comes into play is really about informing that range. Whether they opened with 20 big blinds or 100 big blinds, whether they opened early or late, you know, whether they've been more aggressive or more passive. I mean, is all of that information held independently or does all of that ultimately go into what, how you're ranging that person and then you can compare your hand versus their range? Uh, that's a really good question, and that's why I start by having all of my students play against Poker Snowy. Uh, if you haven't been to PokerSnowy.com, you need to, and you need to go download their software. But, but basically, this thing is an artificial intelligence that has run trillions of simulations, and, um, and then it's kind of stripped all of the data that it produced uh, down to patterns that, that it realized were very successful uh, and, it's, and it's basically produced a game theory optimal strategy for uh, for any two blind structure with up to nine players at the table with up to 400 big blind stacks. Okay, mm -hmm. so I have my students play a ton of hands against that, and that gives them um, basically an exact blueprint of what game theory optimal play should look like. Now, keep in mind that that's not very useful though, because you're, you're in in 
in, uh, in especially in live cash or live tournaments, your goal is to maximally exploit your opponents, right? Uh, but what does what does poker snowy do? It gives them a, it gives my students a really good baseline of what game theory optimal play should look like. For instance, all of my students know after they're done coaching with me that, that you know an optimal opening range from the cutoff is 24% of hands, assuming that somebody is raising to three times the big blind, right? And if they sit down and uh, the cutoff has opened you know, three out of the last four orbits, um, they can safely assume that the cutoff is opening too wide or if the, if the cutoff opens one time and he gets to showdown with 10-6 offsuit, mm -hmm. immediately you can just lob him into the group of people opening way too wide, and now you don't need to play by the rules anymore. You don't need to be defending with half of his uh, optimal opening range on the button. You can three-bet the hell out of him, right? Yeah. The, and I've run simulations for them to show them how crazy you can really go when people are opening too wide. I, I, I tell them, you know, uh, you can – Three bet every single suited ace on the button if somebody's getting to showdown with 10 6 offsuit. You can three bet every single suited connector all the way down to 4 3 suited. You can three bet every single uh, suited gapper down to uh, 6 4 suited. You can take every single suited Broadway and every parry all the way down to eights and three bet with all of those hands if this guy is getting uh, to showdown with 10 6 offsuit. And you just you punish him. For not playing by the rules he's not playing optimal poker therefore you don't need to play by the rules of optimal poker and you can construct an exploitative strategy it starts by just three betting the hell out of him so the framework is really this for you it, it if i'm hearing this correctly is starting with the gto optimal notion so you know what those gto optimal opens are at each of the different positions you know that from your defend range your three bet range all of those things and then what you're doing is just looking at the player, what they've done, the, the other information that's come in, and now adjusting that default accordingly. Right. You, you don't need to know a player's uh, entire range, right? Because in order to be able to do that, you would have to play thousands of hands with them. It but would you be, just know if they're be, wider or narrower. It'd be like sitting on, you know, uh, on... Uh, uh, poker stars and, and just trying to record 4,000 hands in, in your in, uh, poker tracker four, right? Uh, that's totally impractical when you're playing live poker. All you need to do is figure out what the bottom of somebody's opening range is and then everything else fills itself in, right? If somebody's opening 10-6 off, then he's just all over the map. He's, he's just playing anything and, 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 and raising for the sake of raising. Uh, and, and at that point, you know, you, you put together an exploitative strategy and it, and it just starts by realizing that when somebody's opening that wide, um, a mistake has been made and there's nothing that he can do to try and re-exploit you. The only thing that he can do is, is try and compensate in one of three ways. He can four bet too wide, he can call too wide, or he can fold too wide. His, the correct option mm -hmm. is fold too often and cut his losses and prevent the situation from snowballing out of control because he's playing hands that should never be a part of his range, right? Uh, but what people actually do 95% of the time is called too often, and that's great. Right. You know, some of my students get uh, a little bit uneasy about that. They go, you know, why am I three betting the button with, with ace deuce suited uh, when this guy is always going to call my three bets? And I go, that's great. Ace deuce, when he's calling you that white, when he's calling you with ten six off, ace deuce suited is a value three bet. You're raising for value. Right. And how often do you really think he's going to be able to check call? Uh, with 10-6 across a whole bunch of different boards. He's only going to flop a pair a third of the time, and the majority of the time he's going to, to flop a pair that, that uh, isn't top pair or, or isn't even second pair, right? Uh, you know, well, even board, if it is top pair, he's got a horrible kicker. He's, you're going to be able to push him off of that. 
Right. So, you know, well, I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying that, like, he's, he's going to flop a six with his hand 15% of the right, time. Right. The vast majority of the time, the board's going to be king, 10, six. He checks you, you see that he folds. Right. Right. <laughs> so I'm like, why are you concerned that he's calling your three bet? He's actually just compounding the issue by defending way too wide, right? The, um, and, and the other thing is that almost nobody uh, adapts by four betting too much. I, I can I can think of maybe two people that four bet too much, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've watched Victor Blom play uh, live MTTs. He definitely four bets too much, and I've watched Vanessa Selps play. She definitely four bets too much, and they are they're two very extreme outliers. Everybody else either adapts by calling too much, or they cut their losses and they fold, which is mm-hmm. probably the correct option if they're if they're if they're opening too wide to begin with. Good stuff. So let me let me ask you this question now. This is a question I've asked all of the other interviewees. And the idea is it's an incredibly vague situation, which is intentional. And I just want to hear how your brain thinks about this situation. You know, what's going on in your mind? What information is lacking for you to make a decision in this spot? And it's super vague. So I'm just going to tell you that under the gun raises, uh, open raises, and then the cutoff calls, and you're on the button with ace jack. That's all I'm okay, going to tell well, you. So you're doing the same thing that all my students do. You, this this is a habit that you need to break as well. well so I, I, I no, and what I'm, what I'm telling you is I know there's a lot of information that needs to go into this, but what I'm trying to get at is what, from your perspective, what are the most critical things that you need to consider in that case? And maybe you're saying because I looked at Ace Jack first. But no, we, no, 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 <laughs> no. I'm saying that it's it's beyond that, right? I, I I will not speak to people that give me hand histories and don't tell me how many players are at the table. So are we playing ten handed, nine handed, eight handed, seven handed, six handed? How many guys are at the table? Yeah, and that's, I intentionally didn't tell you that because yeah, I want to know what you need to know. So this is a ten handed table. Okay, it's a ten handed table. So that's way different than somebody opening under the gun in a six max game. Yep. Okay. Now I, I need to know like what format are we playing? Are we playing a cash game or a tournament? It's a tournament. And how deep are the stacks? Uh, we are at uh, we are at uh, they are at fifty big blinds. The guy that opened the cut. Okay. And, cut and uh, the other thing is, I want to know what stage of the tournament that we're in. Are we? Is, are there bubble factors? Are we on the bubble? Are we on the final? Are we? Uh, are we no, facing a pay jump here? Or are we really far away from the money? It's good. No middle stages of the tournament. Uh, so we got about half the field left. Okay. And, and then now here's here's the thing that everybody screws up. It's it's. Uh, are there antis involved? There are not. We're one level before they start. Okay. And uh, what is the the open size? Because the, the range of hands that somebody should be opening with is way different if he's opening the 3x versus min raising. He opened a 3x out of his 50 big blind stack. Okay. And then I want to know what this guy looks like. So is he is he middle-aged? Is he an older guy? Is he a younger pro with headphones on? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, he, he looks like me, so he's uh, middle-aged fat and uh, seems a little lost. Okay, and then, and, then, and then what happened after that? You said the cutoff calls? Then the cutoff calls out of his 60 okay. big blind stack. He's got 60 big blinds, um, and, and uh, what does that guy look like? He's younger with headphones. Okay, and then now where are we? Uh, we are on the button. Okay, and we, how many big blinds do we have? We have 40. And you've got ace jack? Yep. Okay, so based off of all of that, um, I know this seems super nitty, but uh, I, like vast majority of the time, I would recommend that that my students just fold here because uh, like the the optimal range of hands for you to be opening 
under the gun or, or for the, the guy under the gun to be opening the guy that looks like you uh, is about 8% of hands. So that would be like nines plus and then like it'd be like ace 10 suited plus king queen suited queen jack suited uh, ace queen off. You, you wouldn't even be opening ace jack offsuit. Uh, so that's really tight. Now let's say that uh, you were min raising the optimal range of hands would, or, or the guy under the gun was min raising the optimal range of hands would be about 12%. At that point it'd be, it'd be about sevens plus, you know, ace nine suited plus you might have like ace four or ace five suited in there every once in a while, king queen suited, queen jack suited, jack 10 suited. Uh, and you, you might go down to like ace jack offsuit. Uh, what I'm saying is that like if somebody is opening under the gun with a reasonable range of hands in a 10 handed game, uh, ace jack is not, um, it doesn't even have a raw equity advantage against that range, uh, much less a playability advantage. So I, I would just fold. So good stuff. So then exactly, this is the kind of stuff I'm, I'm just looking at how your brain works. So what, what factors, whether it's stack size, player type or whatever, uh, would move you to that becoming a three bet? Okay. So if I saw the guy that opened under the gun get to showdown with a hand like ace 10 offsuit or a hand like pocket fours or a hand like six five suited um i would i would consider playing ace jack okay but uh before you know before i can even consider that i also have to now think about the cutoff right so i, I always do it in, in clockwise order right if the, if the if the guy opening under the gun is opening way too tight for me to be profitable with ace jack, I can immediately write it off, right? But if he isn't, if he actually is opening much wider, let's say he's opening 20% of the time under the gun, maybe he's a little bit tilted, uh, or he's just some guy that read a book that wants to, wants to learn how to play loose aggressive, right? Now we can start thinking about the cutoff, okay? The, the, the optimal range of hands for the cutoff to be flatting there is, is very small. Um, he shouldn't even be flatting with like sixes through deuces that won't be long-term profitable. So he could, he could fly with like sevens through, uh, Queens or so. And then he might have, um, some hands like ace queen offsuit, ace queen suited, ace jack suited, maybe king queen suited, queen jack suited, jack 10 suited in his plotting range. It's very small. It's definitely not wider than, uh, about 6% of hands. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and again, like that, the range of hands that he should be flatting with is so tight and there's and it's so strong that that I would not play ace jack in that spot. So I would I would still fold. Hmm. Uh, now now let's let's say that I, the cutoff is not a younger player with headphones on that look, that appears to be competent, appears to know what he's doing, right? Let's say that that guy is uh, is a fish that's just been playing half the hands and and never three bets, right? Uh, if those two variables were in place where one, I saw the guy under the gun opening, uh, with a hand that was way outside of what's optimal. Uh, and I saw the cutoff, you know, playing way more hands than he should ever play and flatting with most of them instead of, instead of three betting. Now ace jack would be an option. Um, and, and flatting at that stack depth is definitely not the right play. You should, you should almost always three bet or fold with a hand like ace jack offsuit. So uh, I would I would three bet to, I think, 10 big blinds or so, 10, 10 big blinds out of 50 or 60 big blinds starting. And what are the considerations of the two blinds that might cause you to, so, so let's say you, you move clockwise, you've come up with this situation, 
that three betting is the right option. You know, if you've got your bet size in mind to 10 big blinds or whatever, 9, 10 big blinds, what considerations do you have for the two blinds at this point? Or what would, what would, what would have to be the situation for you to rethink that three bet? Well, so I, I will, I'll take hands that I should naturally be three betting with and, and I'll flat with them um, if I'm the first flatter and I think that the blinds are fish. So like, let's say that I know the cutoff is opening too wide and, and I want to three bet him a ton, but uh, there, there's a huge fish in, in, the, in the blinds. At that point, I would, I would start shifting a lot of hands, even, even hands as strong as like ace, king or queens. I would throw those into my, my flatting range to bring the fish along. But uh, when there's already a raise and a call ahead of me, if I flat, I'm going to allow the small blind and the big blind to come along for a significantly reduced right. price, um, and and they're going to dilute my equity, right? So let's say that uh, let us say that like the under the gun opened with pocket sixes, and um, a, a, another guy. You know, the, the, the cutoff flatted with, uh, let, let's say, 5-4 suited. And then, you know, I call on the button with ace-jack. How am I doing there? I've got, I definitely have an equity advantage against those two hands. I, I've got, uh, you know, 35-40% equity against those two hands. So I would be happy to stick it in there. Uh, but then as soon as you add, um, like, a call from the big blind where he's got king-queen suited, mm-hmm. uh, equity goes way down, right? And it's, it's going to hover around 25%, right? So I actually, I put myself in a situation where I no longer have uh, an equity advantage. It's pretty neutral. Um, and now I'm playing against four people or sometimes five people instead of um, in, instead of three betting and creating dead money. So I, I'm, I'm making it so that the small blind and the big blind can't uh, continue unless they have just a premium hand. Another thing that I'm doing is I, I'm, I'm magnifying the value of my hand and my uh, the value of my position by forcing the guy under the gun and forcing the guy in the cutoff, both of which are playing too wide, to either call getting the wrong price or fold and sacrifice all of their equity and their preflop investment. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. No, this is this is fantastic. It's it's it's, like, it's hostile takeover poker. So start start thinking like Carl Icahn. Like I'm just gonna, <laughs> right. you know so, I'm gonna I'm gonna put together a hedge fund with with so much money that I'm just going to buy majority ownership of a Fortune 500 company and then start threatening right. their CEO and their CFO and their COO and if they don't do what I want I'm going to fire them and right. get rid of all the self entitled <laughs> employees that that work their way up the ladder and think that they should be able to do anything and, and then they're going to do exactly what I say, right? right. It's the same thing in yes. poker where you need to just price out all the people that have no business having equity in this pot or any claim to their pre flop investment and then you need to force the other guys in the pot uh, to either call getting the wrong price out of position without the initiative, without a skill edge, without a hand that has any playability, or, uh, or, or they can they can fold and sacrifice their preflop investment. That's super helpful. So we could go on for hours, but I do want to honor your time. I'd say you know for those of you who are out there listening, you know Hunter Sitchi, check out uh, checkshovepoker.com, pre-order the book, check out the tools, consider getting some coaching from Hunter if you're one of those guys, gals that are trying to make that next step and want to get serious about it and looking for some some personal coaching it sounds like uh, boy you know if you really want a well thought out strategic approach to your game uh, it sounds like this is maybe a great place to find it <laughs> I, I hope so i hope that's the case yeah. <laughs> i hope that's the case too so we'll, we'll come back to you hunter at a future date and kind of go through some more hands if you're open to doing that um 
But for now, I think I think we should probably just call that a wrap. That's a this is like the fastest hour plus interview I've ever had. <laughs> well, thank you for having me, Steve. I'm definitely open to uh, to coming back on the show, and I appreciate everything that you do. All right, thanks, Hunter. Good luck at, on the felt and with the book and the website and everything else going on. Yep. Take care. Take care. Bye bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Hunter. Super interesting young guy, formerly from Minnesota, now living in Florida, doing a lot of cool things with check shove poker and beyond. Uh, just a final shout out to Running Aces. Thank you so much for being our official sponsor. I also want to invite you all to subscribe to the Rec Poker Podcast through iTunes for the iPhone, uh, through Stitcher for Android, through SoundCloud.com directly, or you can follow us uh, on Twitter at Rec Poker. And we also have a Facebook group, Rec Poker, that you can join and uh, add to the discussion there as well. Always looking for feedback on this episode, on prior episodes, who you'd like to see in the future, what things you'd like to have us covered. So feel free to chime in with any input that you might have. So with that, until next week, good luck on the felt, and we will chat with you later. 